tackling climate change needs to be a whole of economy and whole of government agenda. We're talking about changing the whole economy. So I think we have to think about it differently and that's why we're talking about a social guarantee. Climate change and the physical boundaries of our planet make it imperative to transform the way our societies work and produce goods. Let's say it out loud. We need a deep and great turnaround. In episode one of this podcast, we dealt with the issue of how to finance such a turnaround. But today, we want to dig a bit more into specific frameworks and policy proposals that could make the turnaround a reality. Proposals that could transform the way our economies and governments work. To kick off this reflection, today our guest speakers are Anna Kut, Principal Fellow at the New Economics Foundation and the Director of the Social Guarantee Initiative. And we have Antonio Andreoni, Associate Professor of Industrial Economics at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose and Incoming Professor of Development Economics at SOAS University of London. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having us. All right, Anna, let's start with you. In an article that you wrote for the Heinrich Bull Stiftung, you call for the establishment of a social guarantee framework to run our economies. We'll tackle the specifics of what the social guarantee is all about in the second part of the podcast. But I'd like to start with why we need a change of perspective. You mentioned the need to adopt a needs-based approach to run our welfare systems and economies However, this leads me to the fundamental question, what approach are we following today? So we have to bear in mind that the economy is a social and political construct and that we can decide how it's run and what its purpose is. And what it needs to do is not what it's doing right now, which is assuming that everything will be fine as long as we satisfy people's wants and preferences in a, as free a market as possible that uh, we meet people's needs. The problem with what we've got now is that the way the economy is operating and the way people seem to be prepared to allow the economy to operate is that it takes no account of society and society's needs. That's a sort of a byproduct. Whatever happens to society is very bad for social inequality and it's very bad indeed for the natural environment so the social guarantee is a way of trying to redirect the purpose of the economy, what it stands for, why it matters, and what it should be trying to do. Thanks for that. All right, Antonio, you also suggest that we need to develop something new, namely a strategic industrial approach or policy. You argue that this is needed to redirect our industrial ecosystem. Again, before we go into the specifics of your proposal, I feel like it's a cliffhanger here for the audience. I want to ask you, why is there a need for a change? Or in other words, what types of policies do we tend to adopt today that are not working? Thanks. Thanks for this opportunity. Well, I mean, the 
We are living in a time where there are overlapping crises. We are seeing that the climate change crisis has been interacting with the pandemic, and now we are seeing the looming of a food crisis. So we are at a time where actually we need to rethink how we produce our material wealth, but at the same time, how we make our economy and our industrial ecosystems more resilient and capable to address the specific social environmental needs that we have. I mean, the climate change crisis is creating massive problems, especially in those countries that paradoxically have contributed less to climate change. So, so far, we have relied a lot on market-fixing solutions to address these problems. We have been basically believing that the market is the best mechanism to actually fix all these problems, capturing all the different type of problems that we are discussing here. But we also have seen that market-fixing solutions, so for example, carbon pricing in the context of climate change, they tend to operate in a quite slow way and not deep enough. And in fact, these crises I'm alluding to require a much higher level of coordination and restructuring, deep restructuring. Also, macro-level solutions sometimes are not sufficient because they're not selective enough and not uh, allow to actually uh, reorganize uh, the uh, industrial ecosystem as, as we need to. I'm so glad, Antonio, that you also talked about the unequal distribution kind of an almost burden, as you said, placed on developing countries and how it's so unfair in terms of who is actually producing most of the carbon emissions. I just wanted to check if there are any reactions to anything that either of you said. Well, I could certainly add that I also pleased that we're putting this conversation in the global context, as well as just thinking about countries in the rich north or indeed our own countries. We have to understand that you need some policies and strategies that are geared to address existing imbalances of power and existing social and economic inequalities. I would add, actually, that I'm particularly pleased that we are trying to align this discussion between industrial productive kind of restructuring needs as well as social. We cannot think about changes in the productive structure without thinking about how societies, human beings, workers, firms, organizations are going to be part of that. Before we move on with the interview, just a short data snapshot. Developing new social and industrial policies must become a priority for our governments. The latest roadmap document, Net Zero by 2050, from the International Energy Agency, calls for a dramatic acceleration in green investments, deployment of technologies and implementation of climate policies. The IEA also said that in terms of rate of energy, efficiency improvements of 4% per year average increase to 2030 is necessary. This requires a five-fold increase in energy capacity from solar and wind technologies and the exploitation of opportunities arising from advanced battery technologies, hydrogen electrolyzers and direct air capture and storage. Supporting this transition calls for an estimated $90 billion of public investments globally and crowding in further clean energy investments on the order of more than $4 trillion. So far, we've learned that our economies are based on so-called orthodox economic models or assumptions. The imperative is to satisfy wants and preferences, as Anna has put it, rather than needs. So this intrinsically leads to a system lacking a sense of limits and boundaries. Everything is run through market transactions. 
On the other hand, we came to understand that until now, governments have opted for market fixing and macroeconomic expansionary measures to try to steer a green transformation, an approach that appears to be falling short of having a concrete impact. Anna, could you tell us what is a social guarantee that you're talking about in your paper? How does it change and solve the issues that we talked about a little bit earlier? And if you could explain to us why you define it as a framework. Well, the social guarantee starts from the premise that everybody should have access to life's essentials. That is things that we all need in order to survive, to participate in society and to lead a life that we value. And these essentials are things that we can objectively identify. There's a wide range, but it would go from things like water and energy, um, housing, education, childcare, adult social care, transport, and there are other things as well. Now, in order to get access to life's essentials, people need two things. One is they need a sufficient income, and they need access to universal services that are collectively provided. You can only do that successfully for everybody through collective measures. And that's about providing services. It's about investing and distributing resources. And it's about regulation. And the third thing, which is very important, is that this must be geared to ensuring that needs are met within the limits of a finite ecosystem. So, for example, if we talk about the cost of living crisis, everybody seems to think it's all about making sure people have enough money. Well, actually, if people have secure access to housing that they can afford, to childcare, to education, to health, to transport, and a number of other things similarly, they would then have a much higher, much lower level of need for disposable cash income. And there would be a much more security for everyone. While reading your research, Anna, I really liked that you had mentioned that so much research has already been done in understanding globally what are these very common needs that need to be met. I found that very interesting. But as a social justice activist, I'm very much in support of this. I love the idea of a social guarantee. But I'm sure you've come across many cynics who either don't believe that this approach is ideal or even achievable. So I'm curious, what are the criticisms that you most often get And how would you respond to them? Well, this is where the idea of a framework comes in. We recognize, people say, well, you know, does this mean it's going to be like big state, like a return to Soviet communism or something, um, and just giving people things? It's not about that at all. When you've got things like housing, yes, people can pay for housing, but you need collective measures to make sure that everybody has access to sufficient and affordable housing. So what we say is that, It's not like a blueprint or a manifesto or a silver bullet that will solve all our problems, but it's a framework for saying this is a guide to policy and practice to ensure that do what we can and move towards ensuring, if you like, that everyone has access to life's essentials. And so it isn't about big state. The services can be provided by a range of different organizations. They can be state services. They can be provided by community-based groups. They can be provided by non-profit organizations and sometimes by businesses. But all providers, and this is part of the framework, need to be locked into a set of public interest obligations, which would include things like you know, eliminating excess profits, ensuring equal access, um, making sure that workers have decent paying conditions, 
and making sure that they encourage sustainable practice. And I would like to see this sort of knitted into an industrial policy in the same way as I would like to see it driving a rethinking of economic policy more broadly, bringing the social and the economic together. Antonio, instead you are suggesting that government should enact a strategic industrial policy approach for deep industrial restructuring instead of market fixing and macroeconomic expansionary measures. So please tell us what your proposal is all about. Governments have always deployed some forms of industrial policy to shape the economy. And even when industrial policy are not in place, it's actually a form of industrial policy. It's leaving the market to do whatever the market wants to do. So my proposal is really about trying to think about industrial policy in a way that address the kind of challenges we've been discussing so far, Now, industrial policy fundamentally is about three main things. It's about directing and aligning productive resources and capabilities towards social, environmental, productive needs that are essential for society. We have research capabilities in public institutions and universities. We have uh, productive capabilities in firms, in organizations. Families are productive organizations themselves. So, Coordinating all this multi-stakeholder effort towards the kind of social, environmental, productive needs that we are discussing here is a key component of an industrial policy. And again, leaving the market to do that, we have seen doesn't really uh, deliver what we need. This is at the country level, at the local level, the regional level, but also at the international level. For example, if we talk about green hydrogen or we talk about batteries for lithium, these are resources that are concentrated in few countries around the world let's say the DRC Congo, let's say Chile, that is South Africa and so on. And all these countries are in desperate need to actually have technologies to create job opportunities, to have a transfer of vaccines, to have capacity developing the countries. So industrial policy is about this new social productive contract that has to be built at all these different levels. So that's a really fantastic overview of great ideas and proposals. But I think we're all wondering, how can we actually get there? So I would really appreciate it if you could share your thoughts on this. Maybe we'll start with you, Antonio. Sure. In this work that we've been doing, I emphasized a number of policy instruments and areas that could be considered. First of all, there is need for public finance, but often there is an emphasis on more and more finance. The problem is not just having lots of finance. The problem is to direct finance towards the areas that we need and also to leverage finance where finance exists. There is need to use public procurement in a much more strategic way and functional way. There are already regulatory frameworks that allow to do so. Procurement is a fantastic instrument to actually create the type of right demand that you need to actually, for example, address the kind of social guarantee provision schemes that Anna was talking about, uh, and also a way to make sure that future markets are created. Anna, what about you? How can we make the social guarantee really happen? It is a big idea that can start small and local. So I think the first thing to say is with this is that it isn't going to all happen at once. So we're trying to build a coalition of organizations to embrace this idea and to spread it and to help us develop it. So that's the first thing really that needs to happen. The second thing that needs to happen is that we need to find out, identify and illustrate and communicate all the really excellent local examples of this in practice. There are many local authorities in the UK who are trying to meet 
specific needs of the local population. And in one borough, they decided that what was required by some of the poorest people in the borough was internet access, people, kids who didn't have access to the internet. And so they decided to invest in making sure that each of these kids had access to a free laptop, to the internet signals, and to some training to help them use it. Now, that is just one small example. And we can't say, that's it, that's the social guarantee, because we want everybody to be able to have access to the internet where that is essential for them to live a decent life in society. But there are many other examples of where housing is affordable, where childcare is high quality and affordable. Looking around Europe to whether it's Germany or Norway or France, there are plenty of examples that we can bring together and show what it can look like, not just in Europe, but also in other parts of the world too. So that's the second thing we would need to do. And I think that, I mean, ultimately you need governments to be elected who will embrace this approach. So who will recognise the overriding importance of understanding what everyone needs in order to survive and participate and what they can do to gear the economy, to re- to transform the economy so that people's needs are met within planetary boundaries. So it's about electoral strategy, it's about communicating good examples of good practice, and it's about building a coalition. Something that underpins both of your proposals is a very strong role of the state within the economy. Let's analyze this from a critical perspective. In the first episode of this podcast, actually, a fellow colleague of yours, Frank Lerwin, argued that the European fiscal rules are operating as a break on this scenario. So how realistic do you think your proposals are today? And can something be done before changing the European fiscal rules? Yes, I think uh, something can be done. It's about uh, starting small. It's about showing what can be done. It's about taking a pragmatic approach and at the same time building up a critical mass of support for an idea that would lead to the election of governments who are committed to make this happen. So, of course, we must understand what the barriers are. And, of course, we must uh, try to do what we can to address those barriers. I think another really important thing we can do to uh, get things started while those barriers exist is to join up this conversation so we are talk- we do have industrial policy people talking to eco-social policy people like myself so that we do talk between the economists and the social policy people and so on i think this is where we can really help to fashion generate a politics that will help to overcome those barriers so the narrative has to change social provision industrial policy this is not Statalism. This is a way of better coordinating more complex society that require fast change, that require high level of coordination in the face of complex and weak type of problems. So from my point of view, we need to change the way in which we have this sort of framework and almost hegemonic type of ideas around state markets and community society problems are one and the same. And these different actors have to play their different roles into that picture. And I think the state in this case uh, needs to regain some credit in the sense that when crises have emerged, we have rediscovered how important it is to have functioning governments and how important to have state capabilities. Anna, you wanted to jump in. Thank you. Yes. Yes, I just want to endorse that. To see the whole thing as an investment, 
So what we talk about is an investment in the social infrastructure on which the economy absolutely and fundamentally depends. So we need to get people to think in terms of investment, not just expenditure, but also to think differently about value and how you attach value to the results of that investment. So it isn't just a simple cost-benefit analysis. It's about understanding the social and economic and environmental returns on the investment that's made in the first place. So that's a really important thing that needs to happen and needs to be broadly embraced and better understood to uh, change the mindset so that we think about investment and social, not just the material infrastructure. I think that is a really wonderful note to end this podcast on. So I just want to say again, thank you so much, Anna and Antonio, for telling us so much about your research and explaining. And I really hope that the audience has learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. You've just listened to the third episode of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. Before we say goodbye, just a few more details about the work of Anna and Antonio. You can read their articles respectively on the implementation of a social guarantee and a strategic industrial policy approach on eu.boell.org. Anna's and Antonio's articles are part of a special dossier called Making the Great Turnaround Work, Economic Policy for a Green and Just Transition published by the European Union Office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. And that's it, folks. Until the next episode, take care and goodbye.